What would you do if your current position created an unbalanced life and triggered previous personal traumas? This week's guest, Bethany Hill, shares how she took a step back to take a step forward to find the balance she needed to be successful. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Bethany, thank you so much for being on the podcast again. Thank you for having me. And for those who don't know, Bethany was on episode number two when the podcast had just begun. I reached out to Bethany and she was so kind to come on the show. I had no idea what this project was going to be, but I wanted to inspire other leaders. And Bethany was such an inspiration to me and to so many listeners. So Bethany, it is an honor once again to speak with you. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me again. (laughs) Definitely check out episode two because Bethany talks about her leadership journey. Today, we're going to talk about a whole host of different topics with social emotional learning, with trauma-informed classrooms, and also self-doubt. Bethany, I know you've had quite a journey growing up through self-doubt and then also in your leadership journey. So for our listeners, can you just share your story about self-doubt, but then also how you worked through trauma as a child? Absolutely. I grew up in a high level of poverty, and I was fortunate to not have to worry about being hungry or shelter or clothing, those very, very basic needs, but I grew up in chaos. And so when I started to enter elementary school, life was very unstructured for me, and school was so structured that it was a terrifying place. (laughs) And so my first several months of school were I, you know, they were terrible for my for my classroom teacher. They were terrible for my peers because I was that kid who, you know, ret- retreated under a table and didn't want to come out. And I was the kid who cried a lot and who wanted my mom and could not learn. I was not in a state where I could be a student. And so thankfully, I had a teacher who was very patient with me and was able to make me feel emotionally safe. And, you know, that's, I guess, one of the reasons why I've become so passionate about social emotional learning and, and especially trauma-informed practices, because the older I have gotten and worked with kids that are every year, seeing, we're seeing kids that just are going through so much. And even one adverse child experience can be, you know, life-altering for a child. When they have four or more, you know, the, the odds of, you know, negative things happening in their life with their health, with their their career or lack of, um, with their level of poverty, socioeconomic status, all of those things, every, everything can just become very at risk. You know, I remember the time about a year and a half ago when I discovered that I was so close to being a statistic. And it, it just hit me when I took the ACEs test, you know, just kind of a quick look at how many adverse child experiences I actually had. And when I discovered my score, things began to unravel in me. For some reason, the, the trauma of students was starting to affect me internally. And it was probably because I had a, tra- you know, I lost a parent um, a couple of years ago and, and I was in a vulnerable state anyway. And so I started to remember a lot of things from childhood and all of that self-doubt just started to come back at me. You know, we always turn inward on ourselves at times when we don't feel confident or um, secure about a certain thing in our life or a certain change that's occurring. But at that time, things were just sort of unraveling on the the inside of me. And, And to balance all of that 
and to realize how far I had come in spite of a lot of obstacles was something that I had to take time to do. And so I even took a step back from my principal role in order to provide that balance and seek some of that reflection time, use some of the adverse child experiences that had that had happened to me to actually empower teachers and kids. Because the, what I see so much now in our schools is a lot of kids feel very victimized by their circumstances. And, and I remember feeling that way as a kid. And when you feel that way, you have no, you feel like you have no control over anything. And that's a lot of times where um, we see those extreme behaviors in schools um, where kids become disruptive or, or they withdraw or explode, <laughs> you know, and I was that child who was under the table, you know, and, and afraid to come out because I didn't want anybody looking at me. And I, I, I didn't know if anybody would like me. I didn't know if I deserved to be there. All of those things that I had to overcome. Trauma is the feeling after experiences occur in your life. It, and so it's never really gone. You know, you can heal from it and um, you can overcome it, but it's going to, it's going to rear its ugly head every now and then. You know, with me, it happened in the last year and a half. And so I had to really face that. And the whole self-doubt piece, you know, just came crashing on top of me. That's when I knew I had to, you know, to find some balance and take a step back and think about what's important, reprioritize, and then find my passion again. And so um, I'm in the process of that right now. And I'm in a really great place in a different school you know, that has given me a challenge, lots of new relationships to build. So it's been fantastic. Well, we're going to talk about that transition to your next school in just a little bit, but I wanted to touch on the adverse childhood experience or ACEs. For those who don't know what that term means, can you just let our listeners know about that uh, trauma-informed component? Absolutely. And I'm still learning so much about it myself. I read constantly about it, but the ACEs test is actually a list of like 10 questions or situations that you look on. And if you answer yes to at least four um, of those things, then the the odds of being at risk for lots of things, including health, um, chronic health issues later on, incarceration, addiction, all of those kinds of things that send us down the wrong path. The more ACEs that we have, the the more at risk we are. Um, And it doesn't mean that it can happen as we get older. It could happen after we've had a really great life. We're older, you know, and I'm in my 40s and, you know, I'm still at risk, according to the research. Even though I've chosen to go down um, a different path and I've, I've broke the cycle, the generational cycle of some of the things that I had experienced. I think that's one thing that we kind of forget about is that, you know, anytime someone recovers from those things, it doesn't mean that those things just go away, you know, and that we're healed forever and we're never looking back, you know, they still, they still affect us in different ways. And so, you know, I look at children now who come in and, you know, they have multiple adverse experiences and they're six years old, you know, how do we teach them resilience and how to bounce back and to not be a victim, to feel empowered and in control of themselves, you know, when everything else seems to be chaos in their world whole ACEs study has just been fascinating to me. I look forward to learning more about it. I read all the time about anything that I can get my hands on about it. it. I think it's one of those things we never become really proficient at. 
No, and you've written, actually me and you have written a blog post on trauma-informed practices, and that was an honor to write with you. But then also you just had a article on Edutopia also on a topic uh, that was very similar. And then I know that your chat, the EDUAR chat, is also going to have a chat, come. I think this upcoming week, on adverse childhood experiences also. Um, so you are obviously enriched in this topic. For your teachers that may work through the punitive discipline model versus a, a positive model, how do you work with those teachers to kind of help them realize that there may be trauma that's a part of this child's life? You know, I, I've been an administrator for 11 years. Even before that, just being a teacher, I always felt differently about discipline than, than you know, a lot of my peers did. And I tried as a teacher the traditional ways, you know, the behavior charts or, you know, point systems or whatever was out there at the time. You know, I, I realized quickly in my first three years of um, teaching that those things did not work. And so the biggest advice that I always offer teachers who are having difficulty with a particular student or even classroom management is to really dig into the why behind the behavior because it's communicating something, you know, even, even good behaviors communicate something to us. Yeah. Every action that a person exhibits is telling us something, even if there are no words with it. And so, you know, I always ask, you know, ask a teacher, you know, what, what do you know about this kid? You know, what about their social history? Do you know who they live with? Do you know who um, brings them to school? Do you know how many schools they've attended? Sometimes just those little things can start to become pieces of a big puzzle, <laughs> you know, that we have to be able to put together in order to help a child, you know, break away from those circumstances and, you know, learn to be able to function in, in their classroom, um, in their community, in their home, you know, everywhere they go. And so, you know, sometimes we, we just were very judgmental about what we see in front of us as um, disrespect or kids today, <laughs> you know, not being respectful to their elders or, you know, all of the stigma, you know, the stereotypes that we tend to put on kids in society today, you know, kids are really not a lot different than they were 100 years ago. There are so many outliers now that didn't exist back then. And so it's easier for kids to fall into situations that that's hard to get out of. And that's what the generational cycle is like, too, you know. So um, empowering families to even be bigger than their circumstances is another huge piece of it. So uh, yeah, the communication piece with teachers between their students and their families is, is huge. And to not take that behavior personally, because it really isn't about us. It's about what's going on inside the kid. You know, until we figure that out and figure out why those things are happening, we're just going to continue to get that type of behavior. And you know, we can't punish the trauma out of kids. Impossible. And that trauma obviously affects the brain. And like you said, it can be generational. And you've worked at a Title I school where obviously there's a lot more needs with students in that circumstance. So how, as an administrator, did you create a, a culture of empathy and service within that campus? Well, I think a lot of it was we had a lot of data digging that we would do, not just on numbers, not on test scores and things like that, which we have to do, 
but the qualitative data that comes with kids. So even looking at their enrollment forms and looking at who they live with and how many siblings they have and how many schools they've attended, if they've been retained in a grade, they're on medication, all of those things that we need to know as quick as we can before school even starts are crucial because you know, having those vertical conversations between grade levels with kids moving up a grade, um, that's some of the best PD that you can offer a um, staff is for them to be able to talk to each other about kids, but also framing those conversations to where they're not negative conversations, that they're informative and pro-kid, you know, that it's, it's a level of advocacy, ultimately, um, when we're talking to each other about kids um, that are coming up to us. And when we have new students enroll, the quicker we get to know them, the better off we are in serving them. And um, the, the families reaching out to them and, and helping them feel emotionally safe enough to tell us some of the history of their kid is so important because um, it's hard to dig in and figure out some of those things because you don't want to pry, you don't want to be disrespectful, make the families feel like you're, you know, prying into their personal world because these aren't things sometimes that we want to display on a t-shirt. We don't want to talk about our, our past and, and especially if there's been a lot of mistakes made and things like that. And so, you know, I, I think those, the way we find out is through those conversations and building relationships and trying to know as much as we can about our kids as early as we can so we can be proactive and, and then the empathy inside automatically goes up you know when you know that a person is going through something or they've been through something tragic then we we see their hearts differently we see we see their demeanor differently we see their behaviors differently it, you know that it's just a it's such an important piece of an organization to have that empathy at the middle and the heart of everything that goes on in school um, because it helps us refrain from judgment from assumption and from labeling. So when I was first becoming an administrator, I used ISS and OSS and detentions, all the punitive stuff, and realized that those things were not working. And I was really seeing the same behaviors over and over again. And that's really what shifted my thinking as far as what does restorative practices look like? What does trauma-informed classrooms and schools look like? If there's any educators that are listening to this and they're interested in in making that shift, what are some strategies that they can use or what would be some advice that you would give them? I think, you know, um, taking kind of taking a step back and looking at, first of all, the universal language that's in a school and classroom. You know, are there are there preventative measures that make kids feel emotionally safe? Uh, you know, if, if in shared spaces, do we have the same language and expectations? Because sometimes just having those things in place are enough to make kids feel so safe, you know, because everywhere they go, the same things are happening or the adults are expecting the same things out of kids. You know, that can be such a great approach to build a healthy culture, you know, of, of physical and emotional safety. And so that would be the first thing that I would, would share with educators and principals, especially with the universal language piece and the common expectations. Because if everyone can be on the same page, then kids feel better. If adults are confused, if adults are not self-regulated, or, you know, then kids are going to automatically put that red flag up and they're going into their survival state. And then we lose them for the moment, you know, so... Um, but then after that, um, I would look at 
personal practice, you know, and the level of connection. And there are always kids that are going to be harder for us to connect with for whatever reason. You know, their behaviors may adversely affect us to the point where, you know, we, we can't focus, we can't concentrate. They may trigger things within us that we've experienced in the past. It may be the family aspect of it. If, if the parents are, are, um, or the guardians are, are not comfortable and, and you feel defensive and comfortable having conversations with the family, that can be a barrier to the relationship with the kid. And so all of those things have to be considered. And I think the biggest piece of advice that I would give is to always look inward first, because if we can't change our behavior, then you know other people aren't going to change theirs. So adaptability is a necessary skill for anybody who's in the people business and you know if we're not willing to adapt and to to give a little bit and to allow grace then it's our jobs become very difficult because we find ourselves in standoffs with you know with children and with their families and with the community and um, sometimes within our colleagues within the building and so um, being being able to adapt and to step outside of the behavior and not take it personally, but look into the root cause is the best advice that I've been given (laughs) by someone. And I pass that along to everyone else. You talked about the social emotional health of students, but then also you talked about social emotional health in staff. I think that's probably one component that's not really discussed because obviously we're looking at helping our students but as an administrator, what are some things that you did to help the social emotional health of the people that worked in your building? Well, I think, I think first of all, just recognizing how hard they work is so important. I, I can't think of another profession where people work harder than teachers. Mm-hmm. It's such a, an emotional, personal part of who educators are that it's almost impossible to separate that. So we just can't walk out the door and turn it off and forget about it. I know very few educators who have ever been able to do that. And most of the people who do that don't stay in the profession long because they don't find it to be a calling or, you know, to be something that they're making a difference in. So we take, we take our, our position ser- seriously. And, and I think if you can make people feel appreciated and valued for the hard work and the, and the above and beyond things that they do for kids is is the number one thing. And then to be, to be able to check on teachers who have those tough situations with kids. So, because sometimes you see teachers who, unfortunately, they do have something thrown at them or maybe they are kicked or they're hit or, or you know, they, they have a, they get a bite mark from a child. I mean, it, or even just emotionally verbal abuse, you know, that children can, can put on an adult is um, taxing. It's daunting. Um, and it, it's, it hurts, you know, because teachers are, are human beings with hearts that break just like everyone else. And so, um, remembering that those people sometimes need a break and um, they may need a buddy teacher. They may need some additional supports or even a specific plan of action for a certain child, you know, to, to know, okay, if this happens, then here's what we will do. And here are the people who will be there to help you. And so, you know, to support the teacher so that she or he does not ever feel like they're on their own, you know, um, I think that's so important to be able to have that plan in place and to involve the teacher, involve the the grade level, um, even the families and what 
a team will do, a team of adults will do, you know, in light of the um, an extreme behavior occurring because if there's not a plan in place, then usually that's when we see the adults get into their emotional state and everything kind of falls apart after that. There's one thing that I've said a lot on this show is that every educator is a leader and a lot of my guests have shared similar thoughts. So for you on your campuses, how have you empowered your staff to become leaders in their own classroom or on the campus? Well, every teacher I think has their their niche or their passion, something that they that they love to be able to share with other people, um, but don't always have the outlet to do that. And so I think, you know, when we look at the strengths of the teachers and help other teachers make those connections, it's amazing what will happen in light of that. And sometimes, you know, even just having peer walkthroughs or peer observations can lead a teacher to go in to watch an instructional strategy, but the teacher may come out with some type of management strategy or a relationship building strategy or some type of celebration strategy that sh- that they can go back in and incorporate, even though that's not what they went in for. And so you're, all adults have their unique ways of connecting with, with other, you know, with other adults and with their students. And so when we can pick up on some of those strategies and, you know, support each other, then that's, that's a game changer for a culture. I've seen on Twitter so many times the best teacher or the best um, PD is the teacher down the hall. And I really believe that, you know, that we need to tap into each other more. And that level of empathy that we need to show each other has to be there too, because we're going to have bad days sometimes. And we're going to say the wrong things to kids sometimes and make the wrong decisions. And being able to give ourselves grace in the process is huge too. So I want to talk about your transition to a new campus. As an administrator, um, obviously, most times you don't get to advance in the same building. You get to have the opportunity to go to different campuses and kind of establish yourself as a leader. So what is the most difficult part of transitioning from one campus to another and trying to lead the new campus? Well, you know, when I, I was at my um, other my previous school for five years, and so most of the people had been there that long with me. There, there had been a few that had been added along the way, but I think the, one of the biggest learning curves I've been on is, uh, number one, not knowing this, the kids' names, because normally I'm just used to, to coming in um, and having to learn any new students, everybody else I knew, and so um, I really struggled, you know, not being able to that first couple of weeks of school, just be able to look at a lot of kids and call them by name. And so I had to, and I'm still learning, you know, it's second semester and there are still kids that some days I'm like, Oh, I cannot remember, you know, who that is or whatever. And, but the second thing is the love languages of the staff, you know, knowing how people like to be celebrated, knowing what um, type of validation people need, um, you know, how, how they um, stay motivated, just learning the the people within the organization is the biggest learning curve to me, because that's, you know, that's what matters the most is to have those relationships with kids and adults. And, um, and being new is, is, it's just like starting all over with that after five years. So I've worked really hard to try to get to know the people I'm working with and how to serve them, you know, the best. And, um, and how to celebrate them for sure, you know, as a, as a group, but also as individuals, because this profession is hard and we need to 
be reminded that people see us. You talked about going from a principal to an assistant principal. That mm-hmm. is a major mind shift <laughs> where, you, where you got to make the decisions to now you're supporting the decisions of someone else. So how has that transition been for you? It really has been amazing. And the principal that I work with right now is someone that I knew previously and had a working relationship in the past with. Um, she is amazing, the most compassionate person and just a really strong leader. And so I, she has never once made me feel even like a an assistant principal. Um, I, I feel like she values my my thoughts and my opinions, and she's such a good communicator that you know I feel like we co-lead a lot. But I want to do whatever it takes to support her. So it, it has been a transition because sometimes I'll just I'll think, oh, I'm going to order these things for teachers, and then I remember, oh, I'm not in charge of the budget, <laughs> and so I have to. So those little things that I have to remember, you know, that I don't manage anymore. Um, which is not a bad thing either because it's been nice to um, be able to have some balance in my world with family and with, you know, just my, even my, my faith and um, my spare time and some of my writing and things that I love to do um, still in education, but outside of the school building that I'm um, being able to start, you know, tinkering with. And so um, it has been, you know, it's an odd transition because most of the time you see people move, you know, forward, and, and I don't really consider this being move, moving backward necessarily. Um, I struggled with that at first, but um, I just see it as something that needed to happen in my world. And the building that I'm working in now has, they've just embraced me and made me feel so welcome. And so I, I it's a really, it's been a really great thing. And it's opened up some new doors for speaking engagements and things like that, that I would have never allowed myself to do as a principal who worked pretty much year round. Mm-hmm. And so I have some breathing room with a different contract. And, and so it's been, it's really been great. It's, it's, a, it's been a positive thing. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't know. I want, I wanted to say I'm proud of you, Bethany. I don't know why I wanted to say that, but just because I think there's a, a sense of pride there too. You know, I've, I've accomplished so much. I'm a principal and now, um, like you said, it, it would be obvious to think like, Hey, it's a step backwards, but for you, it's not. And I want to talk about all the amazing things that you're doing with that additional time that you've got now. Um, one being your, your speaking engagements, you're speaking now more and more. So what is it that you're so passionate about that you want to share with others? I'm just now starting to venture into the, that consultant world where you, you know, where you actually, you know, have a price and you have certain criteria. I've just always kind of been there for just to support people through webinars or Google Hangouts or um, even driving to their school if it's, you know, if it's close. And, and it's just been something that I've loved to do. But I started realizing I could probably supplement income and do and some of this, you know, more professionally, I guess. And so the things that I love that I'm so passionate about and are exactly what this podcast is about, you know, just um, the social emotional learning piece and trauma-informed practices. And I'm not an expert. All I can do is speak from my heart and share my own story and, you know, the reason why I'm so passionate about it. And so, and sometimes that's, you know, I've learned that sometimes that story is what people need to hear, you know, and that's, um, to me, it seems so simplistic and, and like I didn't have enough to offer, but um, I've learned over the last year that um, sometimes that's just what people need and, uh, you know, just a reason to try and to think differently, you know, and shift their mindset a little bit. So that's one of the biggest pieces that um, I love to speak about. Um, I've also 
been obsessed really with with quality reading instruction too and the link that has to aces and poverty and success within kids and so there's so many statistics there that show that if kids can't you know be a proficient reader you know things things don't necessarily align in their world um, for their future and so um that's something that I've just been informally talking with other people because I'm in a state, fortunately, that has really prioritized quality reading instruction for kids and empowering teachers with the knowledge of the science behind reading instruction. And so I have just benefited from that tremendously and been through hours and hours and hours of training. And so people are hungry for that in other states that don't necessarily have access. I, I don't know what's exactly in, lined out in the future, but I know that it can be bigger than just what's right in front of you every day. And finding that balance and being able to shift from principal to assistant principal has just kind of given me some slack, you know, there to to be flexible enough to try some new things that terrify me. But I'm, I'm really excited to go out and do some different things. Well, stepping on a limb is a big thing, and I've been trying to, you know, speak to many about finding their voice and to be able to share, and you do that in so many ways on social media, you do it on your writing and blogs, and then now you're speaking, so if there's someone listening that has a story, but they're a little bit afraid to, to share that with, with many, you know, push that post button to go out to who knows what readers will read it, you know, what advice do you have for them? You know, I, I remember the first time I wrote a blog post and I was so petrified to publish that because it just seemed so simple and it seemed like a reflection, more like a diary entry than, than anything. I had a friend who encouraged me to, to go ahead and push it out there because someone probably needs to hear it. And you may start just for yourself, you know, just because it's something that you need to share. But if it helps someone else in the process, then that's just bonus. What I've found is that someone out there usually needs to hear it. it it's on your heart for a reason. Sharing it is it causes vulnerability. It causes some stress and some and some anxiety even, you know, to put yourself out there the way some of us do. But it's very rewarding at the same time because you just never know who you're going to impact or influence. And, you know, with social media, I feel, you know, a lot of people use it in, in very wrong ways. Some of our world leaders don't even manage social media appropriately, but the more we can use it to share our stories and to brand ourselves and to brand our schools and inspire people, encourage people and make those connections that are global and not just within our community. Um, the stronger we become and we influence more, you know, way beyond what we can even fathom. And so I think that's something that we have to take advantage of as educators, even as human beings, you know, um, we're obligated to contribute that way because the medium is there. So why not? Why are we not using it for good? Yeah. So in closing, for those who do not have a leadership position but are interested in making an impact, what are some things that they can do to increase their leadership skills? You know, I think the biggest thing is to, is to lead from where you are because wherever you are, whether it is at a store, you know, as a clerk or a bank teller or um, a custodian or a classroom teacher, a secretary, wherever your role is, there are ways to lead and inspire and encourage. And to me, 
whenever you are personal and make those connections and do so with empathy and support and encouragement that we are leading from where we are. And we don't need a title for that necessarily at all. We just need to be kind humans. And so to me, having those personal connections and those relationships from wherever you are is the most powerful thing that we can do. And that doesn't require any kind of salary or fancy title or anything like that. And when I hear, sometimes when I hear teachers say, well, I'm just a teacher, so that doesn't matter. And I'm like, no, don't say that. <laughs> you know, there is, that's such an oxymoron phrase. You know, it, it's, it's impossible to be just a teacher. You lead little ones every single day, whether it's four-year-olds in a pre-K classroom or senior AP English. It's someone's looking at you as the person to guide them, as the role model, as someone they want to be like, maybe even the person who's saving them. That person may not even know. And so the more we can influence through relationships, no matter where we are, and the more powerful we can make a difference, I think. But I truly believe it. So Bethany, for those who want to connect with you, how may they connect with you on social media? Um, well, I am on Twitter, of course, at um, BethHill2829. I have a hashtag, Joyful Leaders, and a lot of you know a lot of people contribute to that on a daily basis, and it inspires me continually. The sharing and the connections that are there. I also have a Facebook page, Inspiration for Educators, and I just share lots of different things. It's mostly things that other people share. <laughs> you know, and sometimes I have my own things that I share too. I love to connect with people there. I'm on LinkedIn. Instagram at Bethany Hill one. I like to share there as well. I have my website is bethanyshill.com. That's where my blog is. So I love to connect with new people. Yes, you definitely need to connect with Bethany. Honestly, Bethany, you were one of the first ones I connected with getting on Twitter. You have made such an impact on my life and as an educational leader. So thank you for that. Thank you for being on the podcast for a second time. You have no idea how much it means to, to have a conversation with you and, and to learn from from your educational journey. So thank you so much again for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate it.